Hey, Parker. Hey, Carrie. I'm really looking forward to talking about a poem uh, called Thanks, Robert Frost that you sent to me several years ago at a particular time in my life where this poem, as uh, Emily Dickinson said, you know, a good poem, it took the top of my head off. <laughs> it was like just what I needed to read. So I'm so excited that we're going to be revisiting this poem, you and I together. I am too, Carrie, and it's very good to see the top of your head back on. So welcome (laughs) to The Growing Edge. I'm Parker Palmer. And I'm Carrie Newcomer. To the words and habits between us And to us and how we live between the Well, as you said, Carrie, we're going to be working today with a poem called Thanks, Robert Frost by David Ray. It comes from his book, Music of Time. It's a wonderful poem about looking back on your own story and realizing that your story is not frozen. Um, So without further ado, let me read the poem and then you read it next and we'll invite the the listeners to uh, absorb on first pass the very interesting thing the poem has to say. Thanks, Robert Frost by David Ray. Do you have hope for the future, someone asked Robert Frost toward the end. Yes, and even for the past, he replied, that it will turn out to have been all right for what it was, something we can accept, mistakes made by the selves we had to be, not able to be perhaps what we wished, or what, looking back half the time, it seems we could so easily have been or ought. The future, yes, and even for the past, that it will become something we can bear. And I, too, and my children, so I hope, will recall as not too heavy the tug of those albatrosses I sadly placed upon their tender necks. Hope for the past, yes, old Frost, your words provide that courage, and it brings strange peace that itself passes into the past, easier to bear because you said it rather casually as snow went falling in Vermont years ago. Oh, oh! I love that poem. Yeah, and as we often do when we are going to be working with a poem on this podcast, uh, I'm going to read it again. You know, I love hearing a poem twice, especially if it's the first time I've heard it. You know, it kind of washes the first time and then to hear it again in a different voice. So again, this is Thanks, Robert Frost by David Ray from Music of Time. Selected in new poems. Do you have hope for the future? Someone asked Robert Frost toward the end. Yes, and even for the past, he replied, that it will turn out to have been all right for what it was. Something we can accept. Mistakes made by the selves we had to be. Not able to be. Perhaps what we wished or 
what looking back half the time, it seems we could have so easily have been or ought. The future, yes, and even for the past, that it will become something we can bear. And I, too, and my children, so I hope, will recall as not too heavy the tug of those albatrosses I sadly placed upon their tender necks. Hope for the past, yes, old Frost. Your words provide that courage, and it brings strange peace that itself passes into past, easier to bear, because you said it rather casually as snow went on falling in Vermont years ago. Thank you. What a beautiful reading. I saw some new things as you read. So I want to start, Carrie, by asking a kind of overview question that may be on the minds of some listeners as we get into this theme of rewriting the story of your past, which is mm, yeah. kind of counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we think of the past as it's happened, it's over, it's done, it is what it is. But here's Robert Frost saying, no, that's not true. You can refigure it. You can reframe it. You can re-understand it, perhaps in a more life-giving way. So the big question I want to ask is, what's the difference between that and simply lying about your past? Uh, Which I I think hmm. might be a sticking point in these times when we have people in public life who are lying about their past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that's not what we're talking about today. So I guess one way to ask the question is, what, what do we mean when we talk about rewriting the story of our lives in a way that isn't lying? Well, I think that's a really, that's a great question, you know, just as an overall way of looking at this poem. You know, we live into the unseeable future and we also carry the unchangeable past with us and i and i think about that a lot um you know the the entirety of our lives we carry with us and that past and future are always meeting in the now so how do i how do i look at my history how do i look at what has happened and and for me it's not so much to lie about it i think that i think sometimes there's a a pull to, to candy coat it. You know, it's like, oh, it all turned out okay. Or it didn't turn out okay, but here I am. To, to either put a little hazy glow around it. Or, or even, you know, this is unchangeable and so it's unredeemable. And both of those uh, limit what we can learn from our past. Like, when I embrace the story of my whole history... You know, there's so much to learn there. If I learned something, even the things that didn't turn out the way I expected, or I still grieve, or is sad for me, there's some, it's not Pollyanna. It's not like, oh, everything happened for a reason. I kind of don't like when, you know, that's given as the pat answer. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes the hundred year flood happened and you were in the way. But... The idea that I live something and I'm a different person for it and I have, I have all this resource, I have all this data 
if I can embrace my past with a certain kind of friendliness, there's all this resource for me there in terms of what I learned. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, how about you? I mean, what is the, what's the difference between reframing your past and lying about your past? Right. Well, I like what you said very much, and I totally agree that your past is a repository of, of, of insights. If you can mine it in an, in an appreciative, open, searching way and get past this, uh, this frozen frame that we often put on it. So I'm going to give a very personal example of what this has meant to me, <clears throat> uh, involving my parents, both of whom are long gone, um, but an important insight that I came to as I revisited the story that I was telling myself of who they were and who I am as a consequence. Mm-hmm. So my dad was this remarkable, very steady rock of Gibraltar kind of guy. He was kind. He was grounded. He was very calm. He said many, many times, every day is Thanksgiving. And he meant it. Mm. Uh, And he acted as if that were the case. Um, I'm very grateful for that that kind of, you know, hopeful foundation. But it's also true that when I got into my 20s and began, well, late teens, certainly, and began realizing that for me, every day was not Thanksgiving, that posed (laughs) certain problems. I Mm. felt like maybe I'm a failure as a man because the model I had was every day's Thanksgiving. I learned later in his life that that wasn't altogether the case, but that was the way he held it. And that was the way I was holding manhood, too. My mother was, in many ways, at the opposite end of the scale, very emotional, you know, and... I preached uh, the eulogies for both of them, and I said, if you made a film out of my dad's life, it would be in black and white, and he would be played by Cary Grant. If you made a film out of my mother's life, it would be in Technicolor, and she'd be played by Chiquita Banana. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That was the contrast. And as a young man, I found my my mother's emotionality hard to handle. Just, you know, all kinds of reasons for that. But it was just hard to handle. And so I had kind of bifurcated my parents into, you know, a role model with certain limitations and then a force field that I didn't know what to do with. Yeah. Later in life, and this was was a very important journey for me, I came to understand that... I have some of my dad's groundedness and solidity, but I also have some of my mom's, and I'll use this term lovingly, craziness, (laughs) a a creative restlessness that my dad never showed, but my mom had in spades. And so I was able to revisit the past and to quote the poem again, it turned out to have been all right for what it was. For what it was. I, I don't have to live with a myth about either one of them anymore, my parents. I love them both, and I probably love them retroactively, uh, more consciously than I did at the time. Um, and I, I've, 
I've retold my story in a way that I find truthful, honest, and life-giving. So for me, that, that's, there are many other examples, but that's one example of how retelling your story, I think, who knows, I'm, I'm the one talking about my own story and how I handled it. Someone else will have to be the judge of, of its truthfulness if they know all the characters involved intimately and well. But I think I've retold my story in a way that's life-giving for me and honoring of, of my parents and the gifts that they, that they gave me. I'm very grateful for that. I, I really appreciate that and um, that, that real candor uh, about the different kinds of influences and the, the way we come to view our family of origin. You know, uh, yeah. my friend Suzanne always says we have family of origin and family of choice. And sometimes those of us who are fortunate, they overlap. I appreciate it. I just want to say, Carrie, I appreciate the word candor because that's the way my mom was. She would just say whatever is on her mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My dad always measured his comments. To, Very you know, carefully. To, 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 yeah, to kind of put oil on the troubled waters. So my mom just popped up in me by just saying what was on my mind. <laughs> And there's gifts in both of those, um, you know, from from both of those influences. I mean, right. and I and I, 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 I like how you have kind of identified where some of those gifts kind of express themselves in you. You are creatively restless, and you and you can be very colorful. You know, I, don't, I wouldn't <laughs> see you as a person in black and white at all. So there was something you learned there. Uh, some things that you carried with you that you felt really fit with you. And then some things you decided, well, those were for her, you know. Yeah. And, she, and th that was kind of for her. But but I love that. I love seeing that. I There's a certain sense of compassion there when you describe that. Compassion for our own family of origin and growing up. I had someone tell me once um, that no matter how good a parent you are, no matter how sincere you are. At one point in your parenting, or many points, you will make mistakes. You will make a mistake, and sometimes you will make a catastrophic mistake, or more than one, even the finest parents. So for me, hearing you say, it turned out to be okay for what it was. Um, but you've done a lot of inner work on that. You know, you've done a lot of considering what you learned from your father and what you learned from your mother and what you would leave for them to carry and what you would take for you to carry because it made sense for you. Yeah, and I've been very privileged and fortunate to you know, work with folks like you who've, who've always been able to hold that conversation. It, for me, it's very important to note that while inner work has a strong solitary dimension, mm -hmm. it also has a relational dimension. And for me, at least, having trustworthy conversation partners about things like this uh, is absolutely critical to, you know, getting it outside your head and looking at it from different angles. Yeah. Not, not, people, not people who want to instruct you about how you should tell your story. No. But, but people who know how to listen and people who know how to ask open questions that help you uh, dig deeper into what it is you're trying to say. So 
Yeah, it's it's it can be hard work, but you do it because it's life giving work, right? Uh, faking faking your autobiography is death dealing work. That that means you you're not willing or able to show up in the world as who you really are. Um, retelling your story in as honest a way as you know how is life giving, not yeah. death dealing, and that. That that's a litmus test. That the the markers of which I think are pretty clear. I, I'm gonna just requote what here it said that we can accept mistakes made by the selves we had to be, not able to be, perhaps what we wished or what looking back half the time seems we could so easily have been, and then the word or ought, or you know, ought, which is, yeah. or ought, you know that that well I should have. Should have, would have, and could have, um, and you know, there's a sense of compassion in this poem of looking at that and the process of going. Well, I was kind of doing the best I could with what I knew at the time, um, and also saying, "But this is what I was wishing I could be, but mm-hmm. I wasn't quite there yet." Uh, uh, and also that um, the pressures that were upon you. At the time, you ought, you know, and I, and I, I have this um, practice I do with myself that sometimes when I'm doing some of that inner work, uh, working with those those parts of myself that go, oh man, I, I need to befriend a mistake here, because if I can befriend that mistake, um, you know, then I can work with it, then I can learn from it, then it's then it's a resource. Um, so, you know, I, I lay my hand on my heart. I mean, I literally put my hand there. Mm-hmm. And I take a few deep breaths and I go, oh, honey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just like a good friend would do. Oh, honey. You know, of course that's hard. Of course that's a hard memory. You know, okay, we're working with this. You know, what did I learn? Yeah, yeah. Okay, you were 23. What did you know? <laughs> oh, you were 23, and you did that really smart, wise thing, and you didn't even have a sense of mm-hmm. how smart and wise that was. Oh, yeah. there you go. You did that, yeah. and that was a catastrophic mistake. And it's like, oh, honey, you know, you really, yeah. th- there you were. And, uh, and I think it's taken me, it's been a real journey for me. I would have no problems... If a friend was telling me their history, telling me their story and something that they were working with, you know, I'm really working on this thing right now and I just, I struggle with it. And I would just, oh, honey, them like crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would yeah. have so much compassion because, oh, man, I, I know you. And that was yeah. part of it. Yeah. It will have turned out all right for what it yeah. was. And, that, that's beautiful. But at the same time, learning to give that same grace and kindness to myself. Oh, honey. Oh, honey. Mm-hmm. Of course. Yeah. Of course that's yeah. how it happened. That's great. Well, since, uh, since this is candor hour mm-hmm. <laughs> here in Madison, Wisconsin, I, yeah. I love that and I have to be honest about what I do. Yeah. I put my hand over my heart and I say, hey, dude, get a life. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that piece of the process too. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> like when yeah. I get jammed up in my own neurosis, yeah. you know. It yeah, or it stuck. 
I don't yeah. know if you ever get stuck on something. It's like, okay, oh, honey. It's like, uh, you know. If I ever get stuck, let me tell you about the last decade. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that stuck thing. Oh. And, you know, I think someone told me once the definition between guilt and shame. And I thought that that always has stayed with me. And it, and it kind of came about about the same time I, I encountered this poem that you sent me. And that, you know, guilt is saying, oh, man, I messed up. And I did something wrong. And, I, ooh, it doesn't, you know, I didn't feel so good about it. Or, oh, that affected someone else. And I don't feel good about that either, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's guilt. And then, and, um, and then the shame, which is not I did something, but shame is I am something. It's like, I made this mistake, and I am that mistake. And, man, there's nothing that gets me stuck faster than that. Because that's unchangeable. You know, it's like, you are are a a human being that can't be changed. It's like, you know, that doesn't get me anywhere. But when I can look at and befriend that mistake and say, um, you know, wow, that happened. And... um, and, you know, I need to embrace, I, I need to do an old honey here and, yeah. and feel what comes along with that, that knowledge and revelation and data. I mean, sometimes it's, oh, man, that's important data yeah. to, to yeah. see that data without judgment, you know. Yeah, I, I also think that shame is oversensitivity to what other people think of me rather mm, than uh, yeah. an internal assessment of how I'm feeling about myself mm-hmm. and I and one of the things I love about getting older is that increasingly I don't much care what other people <laughs> think of me because they don't they, they don't have a dog in this fight you know I do <laughs> so I get I get kind of crystal clear about that in my here in my dotage I think what we ought to do is 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 reread uh, those lines that you were just working with and see where else we might want to go with it. What do you think? Yeah. If I, can sure. I take want, a crack at that? Yeah, why don't you go ahead and yeah. read it. So this is where Frost has been posed with the question, do you have hope for the future? And the poet mm. David Ray says that, he's, that Frost said this, yes, and even for the past, he replied, that it will turn out to have been all right for what it was, something we can accept, mistakes made by the selves we had to be, not able to be perhaps what we wished, or what, looking back half the time, it seems we so easily could have been or ought. I'm, I'm like you, I'm really, really struck with that word ought at the end yeah. of, of that passage, where, where he's basically saying we get hung up on looking back and realizing we weren't what we ought to have been. I think one of the long-term growth thingies for me has been realizing that the oughts are not a good measure of my life. Uh, there, you know, there are a lot of them yeah. embedded in every wisdom tradition that I know anything about. Mm-hmm. And I'm simply incapable of living up to all of them. Um, I think my task, and I guess I wrote about this in Let Your Life Speak, is, is to find out what my ethical, moral, 
endoskeleton is, the, 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 the bones, the structure of good living that arises within me, rather than hanging on to this exoskeleton that props me up mm -hmm. uh, from the outside, which eventually is going to fail. Those, those, that's how I see the oughts. Yeah. Um, a lot of preachment about how I ought to live does nothing more than create an exoskeleton that is unreliable when push comes to shove, when those hard existential moments pop up. Um, I have a vivid experience, and I've written about this, of my first period of time sitting in a, in a Quaker meeting, uh, in, in a Quaker community where we had the silent meeting for worship seven days a week. And my first take on that after a week or two of that hour of silence every morning was that this is a fraudulent form of worship. And I really got angry about it. Fortunately, I was in a community where there were some wise elders. I was in my mid-30s at the time. And I came to a, a realization with their help. I had spent all of my life up until then in religious settings where somebody else was preaching at me uh -huh. and, and building that, that ethical exoskeleton. Mm -hmm. And in the silence, it was falling apart because I couldn't justify any of it. And these Quaker elders said, this is an opportunity to use the silence to reflect on what is true for you experimentally, experientially. And if you do that faithfully and well, you will build an endoskeleton, my word, not theirs, from the inside of your own life. And that's what I found to be, to be true. I'll give you a quick example to make this concrete. Well, the question is, do I believe in resurrection? Well, having survived three deep dives into deadly clinical depression, yes, I believe that it's possible for life to triumph over death because mm. I've spent time right at that boundary. Yeah. I absolutely believe that that's a possibility, and I don't need to proof text or get archaeological evidence of anything more than the power of my own experience. I believe mm -hmm. that it's possible for life to be victorious over death because I've had the experience of that happening. And I could go on with grace and forgiveness and all the yeah. other things without which I wouldn't be here today. But, you know, for me, there's, there's a deep uh, well of stuff to be discovered when you realize that the oughts will fail you. They sound noble. Yeah. And, 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 you know, why not aspire to them? Well, yeah. I think I just did my best to say, why not? I think the odds often, yeah, they, as you said earlier, they, they kind of uh, focus upon how the world is seeing you and what the world is asking for you. You know, it's, a, you know, it's asking you to frame your story you know, sometimes we talk about ego stories and soul stories, you know, like uh, frame our story in a way that puts us in the best light or uh, in control. And I don't, I don't know, in the way that you would 
look at your life and put it on a resume. Whereas the soul story of our life being very something very different, it being mm-hmm. filled with, you know, growing edges and joy and sorrow and loss and the kinds of truth that carry us through the hardest times. Um, right. Honoring what's the shadow in me as well as the light in me. I mean, you know, those, you know, I think the aughts seem to like hang out with that, the story of the ego, mm-hmm. of how I want to present. And then the stories of my soul, what Robert Frost is talking about, being able to embrace my history with a sense of compassion and grace for what it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and I think sometimes, you know, sometimes grievous things happen. I, you know, one of the things that having done some, some serious work with trauma in my own life, you know, like, well, how, how can you just like, let that go or how can you just forgive that and it's like you know it's it's interesting i think part of that process that that frost was talking about was not about forgetting that this was okay this this terrible thing was okay you know it's embracing my life as a whole and what were the deep understandings what were the soul stories that brought me through it how forgiveness is not forgetting, but a letting go of mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. that, whatever that thing is, having control over my life anymore. Yeah, one of the one of the images you and I have used in conversation, I know, and I, I love it, is is this notion of walk right into it, so you can walk through it. Right. If 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 you evade it or keep trying to walk around it, it it will always be there, uh, mm-hmm. haunting you. But if you can walk right into it and walk through it, then you've integrated it into, and integrated it into your experience. Which sounds so easy. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but actually, you know, it does. And I, lo- I really love to kind of go really back, just a step back to what you're talking about, the endoskeleton. I think about my first experience with silent uh, worship and, silent, and uh, contemplative meditation. Um, my first experience with it was like, Ah, this is what I've been looking for, for that open space, for um, the soul to show up, the soul to show up and to be welcomed and to listen to what it had to offer and to teach. And that, and that was a really important step for me. But that idea of creating our endoskeleton, our own inner structure that we make uh, decisions going forward. Now, my inner work informs how I step forward tomorrow or today, you know, and mm-hmm. how I encounter yeah. my next growing edge because the next growing edge never changes. I mean, it's like what this growing edge is about actually how I frame my history and past so that when I step into the outer work of this next step, you know, it's coming from that endoskeleton, that strong inner work that... I don't know. That helps frame the next yeah. step in a different it's way. Kind of like, kind of like dairy products used to be advertised: build strong bones eight ways, you know, or something like <laughs> yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of spiritual, like Elsie Nutritious. Cow. I don't know. <laughs> cow, right? From a character from my childhood. Yeah. Well, you know, your 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 original experience with the silence, silent form of. Quaker worship, out of which people do speak, just to be clear for those mm-hmm. who don't know. 
they speak spontaneously and they speak experientially, and I I came to love it. I, uh, mm -hmm. But when I came to Pendle Hill, I had done a lot of theological education. I'd studied religion academically. I'd gone to Union Seminary, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, my graduate degree was in the sociology of religion. And so, you know, I had a head full of exoskeleton stuff. And one of my first meetings for worship at Pendle Hill, the window was open. It was a fine spring day, and there was a bird singing right outside the window. And in the middle of the meeting, someone rose and started talking about the bird within. And I thought, where am I? Is that, am I in a loony bin or what? Because <laughs> you know, nobody at seminary or at Berkeley had ever <laughs> talked to me about the bird within as part of, the, of religion, you know? So it was, look, it was my narrow-mindedness. I now talk about such things myself, <laughs> full confession. But I realized at the time, with the help of these Quaker elders, that the reason I was so appalled by hearing <laughs> real people talk is that I'd spent most of my life in a religious institution where nobody talked except the, the person in the pulpit. And yeah. did they have some good things to say? Sure they did, and I value that. I always will. But there were a lot of people in that room who, if they had been given a chance to talk, would have talked about all kinds of things, including the bird within. Yeah. And it was just this, this sudden revelation of what, it, what it's like to open to everybody's version of spiritual experience and to be open-hearted and open-minded about it and embrace it unless it's death-dealing stuff, in which case you say no. Um, so I, I think that's a very rich, a rich subject for me. Yeah. And, you know, I think I was born uh, a seeker and, you know, I was the kid that always asked the question you were not supposed to ask in Sunday school. Mm -hmm. That was like my job. Um, <laughs> uh, and my little poetic mystical bent on life always. And so my first Quaker meeting was in a silent meeting, was in the middle of a rainforest. Uh, I traveled. You were in Costa Rica. I was. And, yeah. and so we were just sitting in the middle of a rainforest, you know, with windows open. And it was like, ah, I can hear my own soul. Mm -hmm. What a concept. Yeah. No one's talking at me or telling me what I need to be thinking right now or praising right now. or It's like... I could actually just listen mm -hmm. to what my own soul or what something wider than my own soul, if not greater, at least wider, mm -hmm. was kind of asking me to be to sit yeah. in, you know, it was like, oh, you know, so for me that it, I, I felt this like amazing relief. And then the bird would sing and I'd go, yeah, like birds do, like in your heart. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I was going to say you. I was like you, the little weird poet kid. <laughs> you, <laughs> like it's you, all about a metaphor. <laughs> I was going to say you've always been the bird within person, and I I come to it late in life. But yeah, uh, it's like oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> great. That's great. Well, do you reckon that we ought to move to the next section of the yeah. poem? Yeah. Um, why don't I go ahead and read this one? It goes on after that that 
you know, the, that reframing of our, our history in a different kind of way that allows us to have this endoskeleton. The future, yes, and even for the past, and that will become something we can bear. And I too, and my children, so I hope, with recall, as not too heavy the tug of those albatrosses I sadly placed upon their tender neck. Wow. I find that really powerful. Yeah, I do too. Um, maybe once again, I'll read it a second time and then yeah. um, kind of kind of make a little response to it from because it strikes me deeply. So he's being asked about, do you have hope for the future? And he says, the future, yes, and even for the past, that it will become something we can bear. And I too, and my children, so I hope, will recall as not too heavy the tug of those albatrosses I sadly placed upon their tender necks. Well, um, as a parent, uh, I know that feeling. I know that sentiment. A parent who's now in his 80s while his kids are solidly into the middle of middle age, um, I know all about fears for my kids, uh, their present, their future. Um, and I know all about um, how it, what it's like to feel like I've somehow let them down and to be haunted by those feelings as life goes on. Um, not that my kids have consistently let me down. They haven't. They've grown into wonderful, self-aware adults. And as recently as the last month or two, I've been deeply engaged in conversations with one of them about that dawning of self-awareness that this one has undergone in a, in a marvelously healing, life-giving way. So, so I kind of like the fact that being a parent never ends, but it does carry with it a sense of did I do okay by them? Yeah. I've talked with yeah. a therapist about parenting. I reckon I'm not the only one. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say to, to uh, folks, to listeners who aren't parents, I think these lessons apply also to regrets we have, may have about friendship or working relationships or something of that sort. Yeah. It's not strictly about having kids or parenthood, but a therapist gave me a very helpful notion to ponder after asking me to tell stories of some of the things that I look back on and wonder about, or even at the time was holding with regret. He said, I have a question for you. Do you think you were a good enough parent? Yeah. Wow. And I said, I thought about it with care, having just laid out a bunch of stories. And I said, yeah, I, Thank you for the question. I do. Um, the, the stories I told may have involved mistakes, but there was nothing malicious in them. No. Whatever hurt I caused was unintentional. And then, more recently, I had the wonderful experience of one of my children now has teenage children of his own. And we were talking the other day about struggles that he's having 
as all parents of teenagers do. And he finally paused and said, well, I've got a question for you, Dad. I know I was really tough on you as a teenager. Why, why didn't you kill me? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was an honest question. <laughs> and he, he and I, I was made a shit. Why did you, <laughs> why did you deal with it? <laughs> yeah. so he, he and I have a great a great relationship. And, and I said, well, I just didn't want to do hard time, you know, had, well, there you go. <laughs> things there I wanted you. to get on with. But it was, it was a wonderful moment of mutual recognition. And yeah. again, it was, it was a conversation in which we were both retelling the story of the past, reframing it, finding it's... new life in it, and insights that both of us, um, are, yeah. are, that are important to both of us. Well, and how powerful that to be able to have that conversation, because that's a very vulnerable conversation on both sides. Yeah. And that he felt he could talk to you about that, and you felt you could talk, you know, uh, you know, vulnerably and honestly back. I mean, what an incredible gift, you know, yeah. for both it of was, you. For both it was of you. beautiful. It was beautiful. You know, I really appreciate that, you know, because I think a lot of times... Ah, oh, there's so much tender stuff in the past that that we don't have those conversations. Um, I, I, I'm really moved that you felt safe to do have that conversation with um, your son, and that he felt safe enough to have that conversation with you. You know, and that there was humor to it, as well as really serious stuff there. Well, I, I don't know. I've said it before on this podcast. I don't know what I would do without humor. Uh, mm. it, it just, it just you know, it's, it's as long as it's not um, evasive humor, like you're trying yeah. to get away from some hard realities. But sometimes those hard realities on further examination are kind of laughable. And it, it's always laughing at yourself. And that it seems to me is a healthy thing in in uh, relationships with with everybody, and and also just the the perspective of that. You know, I think that particular um, part of the poem is 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 really tender for me. You know, as, as a parent, and have being a daughter who was parented. You know, so it's like that that idea, hoping that. Um, whatever catastrophic mistake I made, because that's inevitable. Um, uh, as he said, not too heavy the tug. And, and that also, hopefully, I mean, I, I, I think about Robert Frost as he's describing this, and the poet's describing the conversation that, you know, his children are also seeing him lay his hand on his heart in a way and say, oh, honey, mm-hmm. that that um, his children are are seeing him do the reflective work that creates mm-hmm. um, that endoskeleton and that continues to build upon it. His children are seeing him acknowledge, you know, sometimes so there, some folks will never, ever acknowledge they made a mistake uh, because that would be too scary. You know, it's like, oh, I wasn't perfect and it all, all it comes with it. Mm-hmm. But... You know, seeing a parent brave, ah, that's what it was. 
and sometimes making amends if that's what needs to happen. Um, so it, it's interesting. You know, it's like I, I find that verse very tender um, mm-hmm. with concern. I, I, you know, as a parent myself, if that's such a big concern that it will have been all right, that you were a good enough yeah. um, parent. Yeah. And, you know, from my own experience of my dad, as I mentioned earlier, the, the albatross that he placed around my neck was purely unintentional, uh, which was just his modeling of something that was deeply true for him when, when he was, you know, at, at his peak every day's Thanksgiving. Yeah. Uh, who would have thought that that would have burdened me when I started realizing in my late teens and 20s that every day wasn't Thanksgiving? And of course, mm-hmm. in that generation, people didn't talk much about their inner experience of life. So there are all kinds of reasons to refigure that. But I just want to tell one more story about my dad, which is about how the genius he had at, at cutting me slack um, in, in ways that were wonderfully subtle and grounded and involved story. Um, and these stay with me too, because these were his conscious ways of trying to help me understand what life is about. We were big baseball fans. We were Chicago Cub fans, which, you know, which is a disappointment drill and a heart <laughs> exercise in heartbreak, as it was at the time anyway. And Dad used to say this. He said it more often than I can count. He said, I'd come home, I'd come home from school discouraged about poor performance on a test or something else that had gone wrong in a teenager's life. And he would say, Park, do you know what it takes for a professional baseball player to get into the Hall of Fame? Do you know what kind of batting average he needs to get into the Baseball Hall of Fame? Mm-hmm. And I'd say, well, refresh my memory, Dad. Mm-hmm. And he'd say, if you're batting 350, that's three out of 10, you're headed for the Hall of Fame. Now, let me ask you this. Did you hit three out of 10 this week? You're telling me all about this failure, but did you hit three out of 10 this week? Bless his heart. Uh, what, what a way of framing yeah. life's journey in a way that would liberate a young person from the burden, wow. the really uh, debilitating burden of perfection. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, that's really amazing. So, yeah, you're hitting three out of ten. You're, you're in the Hall of Fame. You're doing okay, more than okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that story. Yeah. I think too. I, I a lot of times I, I, I think. Especially, you know, talking with young folks coming up in this this next generation, you know, who have been raised in the, um, you know, have been raised all through their schooling in high-stakes standardized testing, that it's all about perfection Um, and the pressure on perfection. Because if you don't get this test perfect, um, you're going to bring your your class's test scores down. It might it might even be, you you might your school might be called a failing school. Your teacher might lose merit pay. I mean, it's like, 
everything is, I mean, being perfect, yeah. it's high stakes. And, it's cruel. It's you know, and I, cruel. I, I, there's a whole generation of people who that's all they've known. And, and I really feel for that. Um, I had my own inner perfection push, you know, it's like, I, and, and that was one thing for me to deal with, my own sense of um, uh, having a higher standard for myself than I'd probably give other people for many, many years of my life. Um, but, um, but I kind of see that as part of the ether of our culture right now, you're not supposed to make a mistake. And the high stakes attached to never making a mistake, always getting it right, always being perfect, you know, and that um, it's such a disservice. It's so limiting, so limiting to um, individuals and to communities. You know, it's like it's gonna be messy. Yeah, yeah, very, you know? very much, very much. So we need to deliver that message to young people and to ourselves. I know we're moving toward the end of this trip down memory lane, but I have a favor to ask of you. Yeah. I have come to depend not only on humor, but on music. And uh, you're my neighborhood dealer in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Uh, you, so, <laughs> you name a neurosis, I have a song, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, I do. <laughs> uh, that's, maybe that's why I love your music so much. But I think there's actually a lot more to it than that. So... Um, you have a song that I've been playing in the last week or two called Writing a Better Story. Oh. And it seems to me a perfect fit with what we've been talking about today. So as we bring this conversation to a close, for which I give you my gratitude, could you do that song for us? Yeah. Let's. What we may do is go ahead and play the recording of that. It was first recorded on... Um, an album called The Point of Arrival. And yeah, it's called uh, Writing a Better Story. And that looking at my story with a sense of uh, open-heartedness and compassion, a lot of oh honeys, you know, here's the part, you know, when I lost my map, when the breadcrumbs blew away and there was no way back, just the compass of my heart to find the path, seen only in the dark, flash to lightning flash you know it's like here's all these places and and also the old stories that i didn't want to continue anymore i think that's a part of this poem too the continuation of an old story continuation of an old way of looking at our story mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. you know i'm writing a, a new story a better story but i couldn't do that without looking at the older story and deciding what I wanted to keep what needed to be reframed and what needed to be left behind. Well, I can't think of a better way to take us out of this podcast, for which I thank you, and I look forward to writing a better story. I'm writing a new better storyline Turn the page and leave the blanks With a plot that's less defined And though I won't get back A day of stolen time I could go to bed at night 
with a better storyline. burn down and the wind scatter the ash forgive myself for all the broken glass what I didn't know how to say or ask I'm writing a new ending with a better storyline turn the page and leave the blanks with a plot that's less to find though I won't get back a day is stolen time I could go to bed at night with a better storyline. Here's a scene when I lost my man. When the breadcrumbs blew away And there was no way back Just the compass of my heart to find the path Seen only in the dark Flashed a lightning flash I'm writing an ending With a better storyline Turn the page and leave the blanks With a plot that's less divine Though I won't get back A day is stolen time Better storyline. There are stories shaped like stones, the ones our hearts have always known, the ones we finally. story starts at the edges I can grow even when they're razor sharp I'm grateful for the words that I bookmarked before I really knew I'd need them for this part I'm writing a new ending with a better storyline turn the page and leave the blanks with a plot that's less defined though I won't get back a day stolen time I could go to bed at night With a better You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out the next episode. 
And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation too. And now we have a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into the conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer. And much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change. And as always, wild appreciation for Alison Quantz for creative envisioning, direction, and production. And because we love her. (laughs) 